The following audio is from Shiloh Presbyterian Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. More information about Shiloh Presbyterian Church is available at shilohopc.org. We're continuing our study uh, in the book of Exodus. Exodus chapter 30 will be our sermon text, the entirety of the chapter. Exodus chapter 30, starting at verse 1. Here, of course, the Lord is continuing to give instructions to his servant Moses for the preparations for the building of the tabernacle. This is the word of God. You shall make an altar on which to burn incense. You shall make it of acacia wood. A cubit shall be its length and a cubit its breadth. It shall be square and two cubits shall be its height. Its horns shall be of one piece with it. You shall overlay it with pure gold, its top and around its sides and its horns, and you shall make a molding of gold around it, and you shall make two golden rings for it. Under its molding, on two opposite sides of it, you shall make them, and they shall be holders for the poles with which you will carry it. You shall make the poles of acacia wood and overlay them with gold, and you shall put it in front of the veil that is above the ark of the testimony. In front of the mercy seat, that is above the testimony where I will meet with you. And Aaron shall burn fragrant incense on it. Every morning when he dresses the lamps, he shall burn it. And when Aaron sets up the lamps at twilight, he shall burn it. A regular incense offering before the Lord throughout your generations. You shall not offer unauthorized incense on it, or a burnt offering, or a grain offering, and you shall not pour a drink offering on it. Aaron shall make atonement on its horns once a year. With the blood of the sin offering of atonement, he shall make atonement for it once in the year throughout your generations. It is most holy to the Lord. The Lord said to Moses, Uh, When you take the census of the people of Israel, then each shall give a ransom for his life to the Lord when you number them, that there be no plague among them when you number them. Each one who is numbered in the census shall give this half a shekel according to the shekel of the sanctuary. The shekel is 20 geras. Half a shekel is an offering to the Lord. Everyone who is numbered in the census from 20 years old and upward shall give the Lord's offering. The rich shall not give more, and the poor shall not give less than half the shekel. When you give the Lord's offering to make atonement for your life, you shall take the atonement money from the people of Israel and shall give it for the service of the tent of meeting, that it may bring the people of Israel to remembrance before the Lord so as to make atonement for your lives. The Lord said to Moses, You shall also make a bronze, a basin of bronze with its stand of bronze for washing. You shall put it between the tent of meeting and the altar, and you shall put water in it, with which Aaron and his sons shall wash their hands and their feet when they go into the tent of meeting or when they come near to the altar to minister, to burn a food offering to the Lord. They shall wash with water so that they may not die. They shall wash their hands and their feet, so that they may not die. It shall be a statute forever to them, even to him and to his offspring throughout their generations. The Lord said to Moses, Take the finest spices 
of liquid myrrh, 500 shekels of sweet-smelling cinnamon, half as much as that, 250, and of 250 of aromatic cane, and 500 of cassia, according to the shekel of the sanctuary, and a hen of olive oil. And you shall make of these sacred anointing oil blended as the perfumer, or as by the perfumer, rather. It shall be a holy anointing oil. With it you shall anoint the tent of meeting and the ark of the testimony, and the table and all its utensils, and the lampstand and its utensils, and the altar of incense, and the altar of burnt offering uh, with all its utensils, and the basin and its stand. You shall consecrate them that they may be most holy. Whatever touches them will become holy. You shall anoint Aaron and his sons and consecrate them that they may serve me as priest. And you shall say to the people of Israel, this shall be my holy anointing oil throughout your generations. It shall not be poured on the body of an ordinary person. And you shall make no other like it in its composition. It is holy, and it shall be holy to you. Whoever compounds any like it, or whoever puts any of it on any outsider, or on an outsider rather, shall be cut off from his people. The Lord said to Moses, Take sweet spices, sacti, and onicum, and galbium, sweet spices with pure frankincense, of each there shall be equal parts. And make an incense blended as by the perfumer, seasoned with salt, pure and holy. You shall beat some of it very small, and put part of it before the testimony in the tent of meeting, where I shall meet with you. It shall be most holy for you. And the incense that you shall make according to its composition you shall not make for yourself. It shall be for you holy to the Lord. Whoever makes any like it to use this perfume shall be cut off from his people. This is the word of God. Let's pray and ask his blessing upon us as we consider it this evening. Heavenly Father, as we enter into this passage of your word, we are reminded of a number of things, but first and foremost, we are reminded that you are a holy God. And we pray, O Father, that you would show us your glory this evening, and that you would also show us your grace from your word. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. It's become, I think, almost a a cliché to criticize American Christianity, perhaps in particular American evangelical Christianity, as having an extremely low view of God. And no doubt that's the case, and and I don't have to stand here and convince you of that. I assume that many of you are convinced of that already. Uh, The argument has been made in many places really ad nauseum at this point. American evangelicals have a very low view of God. And what do I mean by that? Well, I mean simply this, that that we tend to have a very cavalier approach uh, to coming near to God. We tend to think of God more as our buddy than as a consuming fire. And one of the blessings of studying in detail, as we are, the construction of the tabernacle, and really the entire book of Exodus up to this point, is that we have seen over and over again 
uh, that the Lord God of Israel, the God who exists, the God who created the heavens and the earth, is first and foremost a God that is marked by holiness and by majesty. He is a God who is a holy God. And He's not to be trifled with. I would imagine you've probably gotten that point already up to this section of the book of Exodus, but here we see it reiterated to us again, don't we? You see, what's remarkable about the book of Exodus is that the closer God comes to the people, the more dangerous their situation becomes. You note, a number of times in our passage, we see, as it were, a warning label slapped on the tabernacle. That says something like this, if you approach God in any cavalier way, in any way that He hasn't commanded, what awaits you is trouble. In one case, we see the danger of a plague upon God's people. In another case, we just see that God is going to kill any priest who doesn't approach Him acknowledging His holiness. Last of all, we see that if anyone misuses the holy, uh, the holy incense or the holy anointing oil of the Lord, they are to be shunned, they're to be cut off, they're to be, in effect, excommunicated from the midst of the people. And there is a severity here that we must recognize. God is a holy God and He does not take lightly those who do not recognize His holiness. We see that. But even more importantly in this passage, as is the case throughout the construction of the tabernacle and the instructions for the construction of the tabernacle as we have them laid out here before us, we see that this God is not only a God of great majesty, a great holiness, but He is a God who, out of His great love, His mercy, and His grace, desires to dwell with his people. He desires to dwell in the midst of this sinful, stiff necked, hard hearted people that he has redeemed out of the land of Egypt. That's his desire. Indeed, he desires that so much that he's given to us here this elaborate instruction for how man can come back into the presence of a holy God. That's what we see here in chapter 30. We see that while God is a holy God, and while it is an incredibly dangerous proposition for sinful men to come into the presence of a holy God, nonetheless, out of His grace and His mercy, God is preparing a way for mankind who has been cast out of His presence since the Garden of Eden to come back into fellowship and to communion with Him. We see God's grace in Exodus chapter 30. Particularly, we see God's grace as He prepares His people for His coming to dwell in their midst. Indeed, in this chapter, we see Him preparing, I think, three broad uh, aspects of the tabernacle. We see, on the one hand, that He's preparing a particular meeting place to meet with His people. Uh, We see that as we reflect upon the altar of incense and upon its significance in the tabernacle itself. The tabernacle is called a tent of meeting, but unique to the tabernacle itself is this piece of furniture uh, in which God says that He will particularly come to have regular communion and fellowship with the people of Israel. He's preparing a meeting place to dwell with His people. 
But not only that, he's preparing the people himself, isn't he? By reminding them of who he is and who they are in relationship to him as he sets forth this rule, or these rules rather, for the census tax. He wants his people to be prepared for dwelling alongside this holy God. And then thirdly, and I think most beautifully in many ways, we see him preparing to come and dwell in the midst of his people by preparing the priest. You note that this chapter has a lot to say about the priest. And the priest will be that link that connects the people of Israel more broadly to their gods. And so as we look at this chapter, as we've looked at some other chapters of Exodus from a high level, as we look at it as it were, not sequentially as it's laid out, but rather topically in many ways, we'll first see God preparing a meeting place, and then we'll see God preparing his people, and then last we'll see God preparing the priest so that he might come and have fellowship and dwell in the midst of his people. That's what I want us to see this evening. And what I want to take away from that is simply the grace of God who comes to dwell in the midst of a sinful people such as us. Let's look then, beginning to consider how God is preparing here in Exodus chapter 30 a meeting place to regularly commune with his people. We, of course, see that right off the bat in the chapter as we begin to see the instructions that are given to Moses for the altar of incense. And we see a number of things about the altar explained to us here. First, we see uh, how the altar is to be constructed. Again, like almost everything in the tabernacle, at least the the pieces of furniture, it's to be made out of acacia wood. Uh, But then it is to be covered with a particular kind of material. In this case, it's covered with gold. Now, I've made the point in the past uh, that it's uh, very obvious that you can see in the construction of the tabernacle, as you go from the outer courts of the tabernacle to the inner portion of the tabernacle, uh, the, the glory of God is being reflected by the way you see the increased value and preciousness of the material which is used. As you get closer to God, the more precious, the more beautiful, the more glorious the material is. And we see that here in the construction of the altar of incense. It is to be covered with gold, which, by the way, is contrasted with the altar which sits outside the tabernacle, which is bronze. It's a golden altar made out of acacia wood. But then we see the positioning of the altar. You know where Moses is to place the altar. Uh, He is to place the altar, we see it in verse 6 in particular, uh, directly before uh, the the veil. You see what verse 6 says, and you shall put it in front of the veil that is above the ark of the testimony, in front of the mercy seats. You see what God is doing here. He's, He's telling Moses that he's to take this altar this golden altar, and he's to put it in the tabernacle as close as you can possibly get to the Holy of Holies without actually entering the Holy of Holies. It is to stand directly before the veil, directly before the mercy seat, directly before the dwelling place of God in His glory. We see the position of the altar. 
But then we see the holiness of the altar. We can jump forward to verses 23 through 29 and, and note that the altar, along with the rest of the tabernacle, for that matter, we're focusing in on the altar at the moment, but the whole tabernacle is anointed with this specific kind of anointing oil, this particular holy anointing oil. And what's the purpose of this? Well, God uses anointing oil throughout the Old Testament to mark out something as unique, something as holy. So we see, of course, that in the anointing of the tabernacle and in the anointing of the priest, everything that goes along with the tabernacle system is to be set apart as holy to the Lord. And the altar, similarly, must be set apart as being holy. It is to be cleansed, it's to be set apart, it's to be devoted for God and for the purposes of worshiping God. So we've seen the construction of the altar, we've seen the position of the altar, we've seen that the altar is set apart as holy. But of course that all leads us to consider the question, what is the significance of the altar? Well, what's it for? You notice it's not an altar that we, we may have expected well, what do you typically do on an altar? Well you, well, you kill an animal as a sacrifice to the Lord. That's what the bronze altar outside is for, right? Uh, we just saw a lot of regulations regarding that. Uh, outside the tabernacle, there's an altar in which the priests are to be slaughtering animals and presenting them as offerings to the Lord. But that's not the case with this altar. Indeed, it's, can, it's, uh, it's specifically noted... Uh, that there is to be no offering in the traditional sense made upon it. And not a grain offering, not a burn offering, not a drink offering. None of that is to take place on the altar of incense. It has one purpose. And that purpose is for the high priest to burn incense upon it. Now if you note for a moment when the priest is meant to burn incense upon it, Verse 8 tells us, verse 7 really too, starting at verse 7, Aaron shall burn fragrant incense on it every morning. When he dresses the lamps, he shall burn it. And when Aaron sets the lamps at twilight, he shall burn it. A regular incense offering before the Lord throughout your generations. Easy to miss, but if you cast your minds back to verse 41 of chapter 29, you'll note that it is at the same time, particularly at twilight here, and and again reiterated later in the morning as well, that the priests are to be bringing sacrifices on the altar outside. You see what's happening here. While the high priest is inside, Aaron in this case is inside, burning incense upon the altar of incense on the interior of the tabernacle, simultaneous to that, outside there is a priest burning an offering of an animal on the altar of bronze. Even more remarkable than that, as far as the connection between these two altars, many commentators have noted that it is almost certain that the way Aaron would burn this incense would be to take some of the coals from that altar outside and bring them into the midst of the tabernacle, set them on the altar, and then burn that incense before the veil. You see... What's taking place inside is meant to replicate what's taking place outside. But we can think of it this way. If there was no priest and there was no altar of incense, what God's people were doing outside would stay outside. But the high priest 
and the altar of incense allows the worship of God's people, the sacrifices of God's people to be brought near into the presence of God. You note that the altar of incense sits right before the veil so that as the incense rises up, it permeates the Holy of Holies with the fragrance of the incense. In a very real sense, what's taking place here and what we're meant to see here is that the sacrifices that are being made outside for the sins of the people are being brought in by the intercession of the high priest and he's laying them before God himself and they are meant there to be a fragrant aroma in his nostrils. They're meant to be a pleasing sacrifice to him. Of course, that points several things out to us. On the one hand, it points to the incredible significance of the work of the high priest, which we'll talk about later. But on the other hand, it points out to us that God's people must come to God through sacrifice. There is no other way. They must come to God with an offering. And as the priest comes in and he burns this offering of incense before the Lord, what he's doing is he's, he's entering into that closest regular fellowship that the people of Israel can have with the Lord God. You know, he only goes into the Holy of Holies once a year. But he's to come right up to the boundary of it and offer this fragrant offering to the Lord when? Every single day. Day and night. This is as close as the people get to the Lord. This is the place where God says He will meet with them on a regular basis. It's a glorious place, this altar of incense. And there's a beautiful typology that's being displayed for us, which we'll see in just a bit when we turn to the priest and consider how this points to the work of the Lord Jesus Christ as He intercedes on our behalf. But it's interesting, I think, as we consider that this is the nearest the people of God can get to God on a regular basis. Uh, and, and as we consider that this incense is to be a fragrant aroma, uh, 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 something that would please the Lord, it would go into his very presence and, and be something that would delight him. I think that's remarkable, particularly when we consider that the Scripture over and over and over again uses this incense altar as an illustration for the prayers of God's people. We sing this in Candychism. If you ever have the blessing of being in the Candychism class, you can hear the kids singing from Psalm 141, verse 2, and singing about how the psalmist desires his prayers to rise before God like incense, to be a fragrant aroma in his nostrils, to be something that God delights in. Think about that when it comes time to to pray. Think about that in your private worship. Think about what you're doing. You're bringing to the Lord a fragrant aroma. That's made even more clear, uh, not in the Psalms this time, but in the book of Revelation. If you cast your mind forward to Revelation chapter 8, verse 3, for instance, uh, you see that the angel there, he, he comes before the altar of the Lord and, and he pours out incense in the form of the prayers of the saints. And they're burned up and they, they arise to God as he sits upon his throne. You see, the tabernacle here is picturing for us what happens in heaven 
when the people of God pray. Is that not an incredible thing to consider? It's an incredible thing to consider. And it's especially incredible when we realize that this is the closest regular communion that the people of God could have with Yahweh in the Old Covenant. Friends, if you want to commune with God on a regular basis, go to Him in prayer. Offer Him your spiritual incense, as it were. And take delight in the reality that if you're in Jesus Christ and He stands before the Father mediating on your behalf, then your prayers arise to the Lord and He delights in them. That's a great blessing. It's a great encouragement to us as Christians. We see then the altar of incense and its beauty and and all of the wondrous things that it communicates to us about the Lord and His desire to meet with His people, to have communion with His people. But then we see, as the text continues, that God is not just preparing a meeting place for His people. He's preparing His people to dwell in the midst of a holy God. You see that beginning at verse 11 and continuing through uh, verse 16 in, in the census tax which is levied against the people of Israel. Now, I'll, I'll be completely honest with you. This is a difficult test, uh, text uh, before us. This is a difficult portion of our text. It's interesting in God's providence that Pastor Holst referenced this text just last week as he was talking about Jesus paying probably this tax in his own life and in his own ministry and, and encouraging his disciples to do the same. Uh, there's quite a bit of diversity of interpretation about what's going on in this tax. It, it's a bit confusing, but I would say uh, that the, the major elements are still clear to us. Uh, the first thing we see about the tax is that the tax is meant to be a ransom payment for the lives of God's people. Uh, you see that uh, uh, several times in the, ta- or in the text. rather. Uh, the Lord says, for instance, in verse 12, When you take the census of the people of Israel, then each shall give a ransom for his life to the Lord when you number them, that there be no plague among them. He says something similar later when he points out that this, is, this tax is meant to be a, a, an atonement for the people's lives. In other words, a part of paying this tax is for the people of Israel to be regularly reminded of really their precarious situation as a sinful people dwelling in the midst of a holy God. If they don't pay this tax and thus atone for their sins, what's going to happen to them? The Lord is going to break out against them and they're going to have plagues put upon them. Interestingly enough, this is almost certainly what happens in 2 Samuel 24 when David takes the census. And you remember, the Lord comes against the people of Israel with a plague. Now, how often the census was taken and what the purpose of the census was, that's a little bit difficult to discern. But it's clear that the purpose of the tax that was taken during the census was to reiterate to the people of God that they owed God for their lives. They're sinners, and they're dwelling with the holy God, and thus they must make atonement. They must make sacrifice. They must pay a ransom for their own lives as they dwell with this God. The second thing we see, though, is the purpose of the tax, more broadly, the purpose of the tax in a more practical sense, rather, would probably be a better way to put it, was, in verse 16 we see, to maintain the tent of meeting. In other words, when the people of Israel were taxed, that money was not to be used on just anything, but it was meant to go to the maintenance 
of the tabernacle. It was meant to go to maintain that place where God was able to meet with his people. It's a significant point, I think, to make here that God's people here are exhorted in when they're being confronted, rather, with the sinfulness of themselves and with the glory of God to make sure that they maintain the worship of God, in this case, financially. There are two aspects that are clear here from the text. Another thing, though, that I think is clear broadly considering as we think about this idea of the tax as an atonement or as a ransom from the people to God is simply this, that it's clear here that the people of God have no inherent right to their own life. You note that. They have no rights. God makes it clear that if they do not pay this tax, if they do not atone for their sins, if they do not pay this ransom money, then they will suffer the consequences. And the simple truth that that's communicating to us here is that we are not in charge of our own being. We are not the sovereign in this situation. We are not the one who's in charge. We, rather, are in submission. And that's why it's remarkable when Jesus pays the tax. Because he demonstrates there his willingness to become a servant for the sake of his people. But I think that we can take some really practical applications away from this. As I was thinking about the reality here that God so clearly demonstrates that his people's lives are not their own, but they belong to him. I couldn't help but think to one of my favorite figures from from church history. That's John Payton. I don't know if any of you have ever heard of John Payton, uh, the, the missionary to the New Everty Islands. Missionary to the cannibals, he's sometimes called. If you haven't heard the story of John Payton, I, I would encourage you, go and read his biography. It's, it's fascinating. John Payton suffered many things for the sake of Christ. He went across the world. He lost his first wife. He lost his child. He was chased by cannibals. He was hiding in trees some nights because they were trying to kill him. He, he had quite the experience in the New Hebrides Islands. Eventually, by his work and by his preaching, a good number of the natives there were converted. But after suffering all these things, at the end of his autobiography, John Payton makes an incredible statement. He says something like this. I'm not going to get it completely right, but something to this effect. He says, I come to the end of my life, and if, if I could have my life again, I would gladly consecrate it to the Lord Jesus Christ for the salvation of the cannibals of the New Hebrides Islands. You see, that was a man who understood that his life was not his own. He understood something that this text is trying to communicate to us, which is that we are not our own, but that we have been bought with a price. And he understood that his life was not to be lived in pursuit of his own pleasures, in pursuit of his own uh, financial benefit. He wasn't worried about how big his IRA was. He was concerned about the glory of God and the salvation of souls. And he was willing, even after suffering all of these things, to acknowledge the reality that the Lord was the one who owned his life. And he was delighting in the ability to give what he had over to the Lord. For his service. Friends, I want to just suggest to you this evening that we ought to meditate more on the reality that we are not our own, that we've been bought with a price. 
that we have been purchased with the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ for the service of God. The people of Israel, I believe, are commanded here to make sure they pay this tax so that they're regularly reminded of the reality that they are not in control of their destiny. And friends, we need to regularly remind ourselves of that as well. Particularly in light of the fact that the Father has sent His Son for us. And we live in the full, glorious light of the new covenant. And we see what it cost God in even more incredible light than they saw here and the grace demonstrated to them in the construction of the tabernacle. We see what it cost God to purchase us. We ought to be willing to lay down what we have for Him. We're not our own. And He's preparing His people to understand that. And so we, like they, I think, ought to live like it. We ought to live in light of that reality every second of our life. He's prepared a meeting place. He's preparing his people. But then last of all, he's preparing the priest. I think this is perhaps the most beautiful portion of this passage as we consider the tabernacle more largely. This is the point where we really see the glory of Christ demonstrated for us. We we look here and we see the preparation of the priest in several places. First, we see it in the bronze basin as the instructions for it are given in verses 17 uh, through 21. And then, of course, we see it as well in the anointing oil uh, as well as we see that the, the priest, just like the altar and the rest of the tabernacle, were to be set apart to the Lord as holy. But as we look particularly at the section dealing with the bronze basin, I think we see several things. The uh, first thing we see is that God is preparing the priest uh, by preparing or by making provision for their cleansing. Uh, we see that, of course, here in the text. It's, it's very clear uh, that they are to go to the, the bronze basin and they are to wash themselves. And they are to make themselves ceremonially clean before the Lord because if they don't, what's going to happen? Well, when they enter into God's presence, they're going to die. When they offer sacrifices to the Lord, they're going to die. This is serious business, once again. Their sins must be cleansed from them, typologically, for them to be able to come into the presence of the Lord to minister. He's cleansing them. He's anointing them, as we've already noted. He's setting them apart as holy. He's designating them as those who would be the the intercessors, the mediator between himself and his people. He's marking them out. He's making them holy unto the Lord for this particular service, devoted to God for the work of interceding between God and his people. They are being prepared, in other words... For mediation. You know, that's the title of our sermon this evening, Preparation for Mediation. And really that's what we're seeing in every aspect of the tabernacle being constructed. We're seeing God's desire to dwell with sinners and we're seeing God preparing for a way in which God can dwell with sinners by setting up this system of mediation in which the high priest and the priest can can work together to bring before God the the worship of God's people and so have a fellowship between himself and his people. The Lord only interacts with his people at close proximity through the priest. 
We've seen that really since Exodus chapter 20, haven't we? When the Lord shows up on the mountain and he scares the people of Israel to death. (laughs) And they acknowledge there, we need someone to mediate for us. We got to have somebody who goes between us and him because if we go up there, we're going to die. And from that point on, we see over and over again that that the Lord is preparing a way by establishing the priesthood here and by preparing them to to work in the context of the tabernacle for, for himself to be able to come and to meet with his people. He's prepared the place, he's prepared the people, he's preparing the priest so that the priest can do what we've described up to this point. They can make sacrifices on the altars outside. They can bring those sacrifices before the Lord in the form of the altar of incense and the incense that's burned on that altar. They can draw near to God and they can mediate. They can stand in the place of His people for God. And they can stand in the place of God for His people. As we consider those two altars, one commentator puts it beautifully, I think. He notes that outside of the tabernacle, we we have there the sin offerings being made. We have these animals being slaughtered and burned up. And on the inside, we have this altar of incense where where the high priest is standing as close as he can get to Yahweh on a regular basis. and And he's interceding for the people by burning this incense before them. And in a very real sense, what we see on the one hand is the sacrifice for sin outside and the intercession for God's people on the inside. And we see really two of the dual aspects of Christ's work as our priests, don't we? We see that not only is He making a sacrifice on the outside of the tabernacle, as it were, for, for the satisfaction of divine justice to pay the penalty for our sins, but He is inside the tabernacle continually, day by day, interceding for the people of God. Aaron is standing before Yahweh here, pouring out the incense, the picture, the prayers, the worship of God's people, bringing them before the Lord, this fragrant aroma, and and bringing it, as it were, very close inside to the presence of God. If it wasn't for the high priest, we would be outside the tabernacle, Yahweh would be inside the tabernacle, and never would the two meet. But through the work of the high priest, what happens? God's people come inside. They come into the presence of God. And the most glorious expression, when the high priest actually enters in behind the veil into the Holy of Holies. But on a regular basis, as he mediates for them by burning incense before the Lord. Two aspects of our Savior's work are being typified here beautifully for us. Offering for sin, continual intercession. I think the picture we have here, brothers and sisters, is that we have a Savior who is able to do all the work necessary to bring us into fellowship with our Father. We have a complete Savior. We have a Savior who makes a sacrifice. We have a Savior who makes intercession. We have a hope, a living hope in heaven, even at this very moment, through the work, past tense and present tense, of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
It's glorious. It's wonderful. And it should encourage every single one of us here to take comforts in the great high priest that we have who stands even at this very moment, or more appropriately sits even at this very moment, at the right hand of our Father because He has completed His work and yet He ever intercedes for us. It's a beautiful picture here. It's a glorious gospel, really, that Exodus 30 is preaching to us through showing us the preparation that God is making to dwell in the midst of His people by all these provisions that He is establishing. He is indeed preparing a place to meet with sinners. He's preparing His people to always live in this consciousness of the God that they dwell in the midst of. And He's preparing a priesthood so that they can fellowship and commune together in a way that has never happened, friends, at this point in redemptive history since the Garden of Eden. This is a glorious gospel that Exodus 30 is seeking to encourage us to take hold of. And it's a glorious Savior that it points us towards. A high priest who is able to save to the uttermost. Thus the Lord is showing us here not only that He is a glorious God, but that He is an immensely gracious God. A God of uncomprehensible grace and mercy. A God of love and provision. A God who delights to dwell with His people. This is what the text tells us. Let us go forth and live in light of that glorious truth. Amen.